0: is our American stories and you're listening to the Staple Singers and it's hard to interrupt this song. And this single, well, one of the most famous of the Staple Singers and if you ever get a chance just go on YouTube and watch Mavis do her thing with Pop Staples. It's a beautiful thing. And we thought we'd play this song by the Staple Singers not as the story of a song, which we love to do here on this show, but because the story we're going to hear is about a stapler. And not just any ordinary stapler. Here's Jesse.
1: A candy apple red swingline stapler plays a prominent role in Office Space, a 1999 dark comedy by Mike Judge about a fictitious Texas software company and the everyday people who work there. I believe you have my stapler. One of those office dwellers is Milton Waddams, played by one of today's most prolific
0: character actors, Stephen Root. He's an invisible nuisance that... Must be tolerated because he's a human on the planet. But he takes up space, and and he's, he's not a bad human being to them. I don't consider Milton over the top at all. I think it's one of my subtlest roles, actually. Even though it's a, a big character, it's
1: it's done really small. Milton is an overweight, aging nerd with prescription glasses so thick that you can't see his eyes. I
0: don't care if they lay me off either, because I told, I told Bill that if they move my desk one more time, then... Then then I'm quitting. I'm going to
2: quit. And and I told Dom, too, because they've moved my desk four times already
0: this year, and I used to be over by the window, and I could see the squirrels, and they were
1: married, but then they switched. He devotes his work days to guarding his red swing line against his boss, who is constantly moving his desk and stealing his stapler.
3: Hi, Milton.
2: What's I, happening? I, I said, Mel, said,
4: we're going to need to go ahead and move
5: you downstairs into storage B. No,
6: we I, I
2: was told I uh, have could some
6: have
3: new people coming if, in and no, we need all the space we can get. But
6: there's no space.
1: So if you could in, just go ahead and if, pack up it, your stuff it, and move it down
6: there, but, no, that would be terrific. I, I, I was new. You okay? could stay. It, excuse me. Yeah, I, I believe you have my stapler.
1: But Milton Waddams eventually gets his revenge against the smug boss who takes his stapler away. I can set the building on fire. By setting the building on fire. Now, Office Space barely earned back the $10 million it cost News Corp's 20th Century Fox to make the film. But in 2000, when it came out on video, it was clear that the movie was reaching a particular audience. Cubicle-dwelling computer programmers. For months, Swingline fielded demands for that red stapler pouring in by phone and email. Corporate accounts payable, Nina speaking. Just a moment. There was just a slight little problem. Swingline didn't make bright red staplers. The one in the movie was custom painted by a prop designer. When real life Milton Waddamses found out they couldn't buy one from the manufacturer, they simply made their own creating a thriving black market on eBay for Swingline's that were simply spray-painted red. Then, finally, three years after the red stapler buzz began, Swingline began selling a real red stapler, its basic 747 model, now with a new paint job! Office Space has turned out to be one of the more effective, if unusual, recent examples of product placement in films, Now, the movie didn't just spark sales for Swingline, it invented the whole idea of a bright red stapler to begin with. Now, the sleepy Midwestern company that made the first top-loading stapler more than 60 years ago has discovered a new approach to marketing Office products to younger generations. Best of all, the Office Space movie plug didn't cost Swingline a single dime. Through the magic of product placement, it's now common for advertisers to have their brands mentioned or used in feature films. Terms of these deals are among Hollywood's most closely guarded secrets. These days, they typically involve advertising or cross-promotion swaps worth millions of dollars. In Swingline's case, though, it was sheer luck, not money, that brought it into office space. I believe you have my stapler. Swingline executives didn't even recognize the marketing opportunity when the movie's producers approached them back in 1999. The company figured its mainstay customers were unlikely to trade up and declined the pitch. Still, the writer and director of Office Space, Mike Judge, best known as the creator of Beavis and Butthead, was determined to keep the red stapler in his film. Swingline did not stand in his way. The new product is a big deal in the stapler community, says Clark Allen, a 29-year-old Dallas web consultant and host of virtualstapler.com where people exchange stories about staplers and stapler injuries. The red staplers have quickly become the most popular item on the Swingline website, which is the only place you can buy them, $29 a piece. And that is the story of a stapler. Perhaps the most famous stapler there ever was. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories.
0: But then they switched. From the swing line to the Boston stapler, but I kept my swing line stapler because it didn't bind up as much and, and I kept the staples for the
2: swing line stapler.
4: Okay, Melvin. And oh no, it's not okay because if they make me if they if they take my my stapler then I'll, I'll, I'll have to i the building on fire.
0: And great job as always, Jesse. And we gotta order a couple of those swing line staplers. The red ones get on it. And stapler, virtual Stapler injuries? Stapler stories? Jesse, I think that's a segment. I think that's a segment. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We sublime stuff, silly stuff. We do it all here on the show. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. And please sign up for the podcast. Again, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and tell friends about what we're doing. If you're sick of the yelling and the screaming, the politics, the downers, and just, well, sick of it all. Tune into our show for a little uplift, for a little laugh. You'll learn, you'll laugh, you'll think, you'll cry. That's our goal here. Make you feel something. Sometimes you'll learn something. And again, sometimes you'll just get a chuckle out of what we do, we hope. OurAmericanNetwork.org to learn more. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Before the advent of the Transcontinental Railroad, a journey across the continent meant a dangerous six-month trek over rivers, deserts, and mountains. Alternatively, a traveler could hazard a six-week sea voyage around Cape Horn or sail to Central America and cross the Isthmus of Panama by rail, risking exposure to any number of deadly diseases in the crossing. Interest in building a railroad uniting the continent began soon after the advent of the locomotive at the turn of the 19th century. The first trains began to run in America in the 1830s along the East Coast. By the 40s, the nation's railway networks extended throughout the East, South, and Midwest, and the idea of building a railroad across the nation to the Pacific gained momentum. Many congressmen were leery of beginning such an expensive venture, especially with the Civil War underway, but President Abraham Lincoln who was a longtime supporter of railroads, signed the Pacific Railway Act in July of 1862, pitting two companies, the Union Pacific and the Central Pacific Railroads, against each other in a race for funding, encouraging speed over caution. This is the story of the men known as the Big Four, who incorporated the Central Pacific Railroad and helped build the Transcontinental Railroad. These four individuals risked their businesses, money, time, and talent in order to achieve an unprecedented feat of engineering, vision, and courage. Here to tell the story is Roger McGrath. McGrath is the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. A U.S. Marine and former history professor at UCLA, Dr. McGrath has appeared on numerous History Channel documentaries, and he is a regular contributor for us here at Our American Stories. Here's McGrath
5: late 19th century, Leland Stanford, Collis Huntington, Mark Hopkins, and Charles Crocker became so powerful in California that they were known simply as the Big Four, that the power came from building the Central Pacific Railroad, which accounted for the western half of our nation's first transcontinental railroad. Now, the Big Four didn't start out life as the Big Anything but like tens of thousands of others, came to California during the gold rush years. They didn't even strike gold, at least not in the traditional sense. Their gold came from mining the miners, that is, supplying the miners with dry goods, hardware, tools, firearms, and the other necessities of life on the frontier. From this modest beginning, they rose to dominate life in California to a degree not seen before or since. This is their story. Leland Stanford, Mark Hopkins, and Charles Crocker are born in New York State and Collis Huntington in Connecticut. Three of the four grow up on farms. All spend their childhoods in humble circumstances and work hard. The gold rush brings them to California as young men. All soon turn from digging for gold to establishing businesses in Sacramento. They become fast friends and are soon a force to be reckoned with in Sacramento, the new state capital. Crocker becomes a city councilman. Stanford will later become governor. They are alert to every new business opportunity, especially the possibility of building a railroad across the continent to California. Talk of building a railroad to the Pacific Coast begins in 1845 when Esa Whitney, a New York businessman, proposes the idea to Congress. Whitney suggests the government grant a 60-mile-wide strip of land between Lake Superior and the Oregon coast to any company willing to risk construction. In 1845, Whitney's plan is far ahead of its time. Nonetheless, Whitney launches a campaign to convince both congressmen and the general public that the railroad not only can be built, But is it a necessity? Well, within a few years, most people are convinced a transcontinental railroad can be built. But is it a necessity? There's a small population of Americans in Oregon's Willamette Valley. And businessmen who trade with the Orient will be able to avoid the voyage around Cape Horn. But is that enough to justify such a project? The California Gold Rush puts an end to the necessity question. Tens of thousands of Americans rush into California and it becomes a state in 1850. So suddenly that California skips the territorial stage. Within a few years, there are 400,000 Americans in California. Without question, there is now a need to connect California with the rest of the United States. Now the question becomes which route to California should the railroad take. Northerners argue for a northern route, and southerners for a southern one. Unfortunately, this is the antebellum decade, and north-south antagonism, it is at a fever pitch. Congress cannot decide upon a route. The Big Four are following the debates over the railroad closely. They are astute businessmen, and they know they will profit handsomely from a railroad connection with the East. They take an interest in Theodore Judah, a young railroad engineer and promoter who is building the Sacramento Valley Railroad, a short line that runs from Sacramento into the gold country. At the same time, Judah is thinking he needs partners with money and political influence. Even before he finishes with the Sacramento Valley Railroad, Judah is thinking of a transcontinental railroad. He wants to build the far western end of the railroad from Sacramento over the Sierras to Nevada. He will need partners and money. Judah and the Big Four join forces in charge of the Central Pacific Railroad announcing plans to build over the Sierras to Nevada. They want both federal support and the promise of a rail line to connect their railroad with the Mississippi Valley. The Big Four send Judah to Washington to lobby Congress. Judah proves an effective lobbyist. And in 1862, Congress passes the Pacific Railroad Act, which provides for the first transcontinental railroad. The Pacific Railroad Act decrees that two companies will build the rail line. The Central Pacific Railroad will build eastward from Sacramento, across the Sierras to Nevada. The Union Pacific Railroad will build westward from Omaha, Nebraska, climb the Rockies near South Pass, Wyoming, and follow the Humboldt River to the California-Nevada line. Each road is granted a 400-foot-wide right-of-way, together with 10 alternate sections of land for each mile of track laid. A section of land is 640 acres, or one square mile. In addition to the land the railroads will receive, the government agrees to loan the companies on a first mortgage basis $16,000 for each mile of track built in level country, $32,000 a mile in the foothills, and $48,000 a mile in the mountains. With the passage of the Pacific Railroad Act, Theodore Judah returns to California Almost immediately disagreements erupt with the big four. Judah presents his construction plans for the railroad. They are too grandiose for his partners who are in this to turn a profit, not build an engineering marvel. Judah is terribly upset that he will have to compromise his vision for a monumental project and heads east to see if he can attract investors who will buy out the big four. Judah takes a steamer from San Francisco to Panama and then crosses overland to the Caribbean coast of Panama to catch another steamer to New York. Like thousands who take this route, he contracts yellow fever in Panama. He arrives in New York in poor condition. Within days, he is dead. This leaves the Central Pacific Company in the hands of the Big Four. The big four are very much alike, each is from what is called old American stock. Each is born and reared in the East in humble circumstances and comes to California in the gold rush. Each is intelligent, disciplined and energetic and is willing to work relentlessly. Each is highly ambitious and convinced that his goal in life is the pursuit of wealth. With four such hard-charging individuals, one would think that conflict is inevitable. Fortunately for the Big Four, each proves ideally suited for a different role in the Central Pacific Company. Leland Stanford becomes the company president and the public relations chief in California. He's the company spokesman in seeking subsidies from the state and county governments. Collis Huntington steps into Judah's place as the Washington lobbyist and the chief money raiser in the East. Mark Hopkins manages the money and accounts for every penny spent. He restrains his partners from making imprudent moves. Charles Crocker supervises construction. In later years, Crocker likes to remind his partners that whatever they had done, he had actually built the railroad.
0: And when we come back, we'll continue with this remarkable story of these four different Easterners who unite the country with the Transcontinental Railroad. Roger McGrath continues this story here on Our American Stories. continue here with our American stories and with Roger McGrath and the story of the big four and the building of the transcontinental railroad and by the way you heard the story of Theodore Judah and this is what happened to so many people trying to get from the west coast to the east coast taking that long multi-part voyage killed him killed him and again we heard what we hear so often as we talk about the building of American enterprises and it's different men and women coming together with different skills and different skill sets huddled around a common goal. Now let's return to McGrath, and the story of the building of the Transcontinental Railroad.
5: 40 miles of track has to be laid before the first federal subsidy is collectible. This is difficult. Because of the Civil War, materials are at inflated prices. Round the horn shipping charges are sky high. And the labor supply is limited. The Civil War and the booming Nevada silver and gold mines mean full employment. At this time the Big Four's own resources are modest. Their Big Four status is years in the future. Moreover, investors are not eager to buy stock in the Central Pacific Company because the federal government holds a first mortgage guarantee on the company. This means should the company go bankrupt The government gets first dibs on the company's assets. Leland Stanford scores the first victory. In 1862, he begins serving as governor of California. He convinces the state government to buy 1.5 million worth of stock in the Central Pacific Company. Now, this would be considered a conflict of interest today. But in 1862, it's considered a good move by the state. California desperately needs a railroad to connect it with the East, and the Central Pacific Company is the one designated to build the California portion of the railroad by Congress. Most people at the time think Stanford and his partners will benefit from the stock purchase, okay, but California will benefit far more if a railroad is built. Collis Huntington then scores a second victory. In 1864, Congress amends the Pacific Railroad Act. The land grant is doubled. And most importantly, the government reduces the security for its loans from a first to a second mortgage. Now, private investors are willing to risk their money with a first mortgage guarantee. Finally, Crocker solves the labor problem. At first, Crocker relies upon white Californians, mostly immigrant Irish and Germans. The wage scale has to be relatively high, and many of the men look upon railroad work as a way to earn a grub stake and then go off to gold and silver strikes in Nevada. The labor turnover is excessive. Crocker now decides to try the Chinese. The Chinese are already a familiar figure in California, comprising about 5% of the general population and some 10% of the mining population. There are several powerful Chinese businessmen in San Francisco and in Sacramento who act as labor contractors. Crocker negotiates with them and they supply him with workers. By the end of 1865, Crocker has some 6,000 Chinese workers and double that number by 1868. It's important to understand that white railroad workers are not fired and replaced by cheaper Chinese laborers. The construction crews are being expanded so rapidly that no one loses his job. With the financial and labor problems solved, the pace of construction accelerates and the Big Four, all astute businessmen, begin thinking of not stopping at the California Nevada state line, but laying track across Nevada. Collis Huntington's lobbying efforts pay off again. In 1866, he convinces Congress to again amend the Pacific Railroad Act and allow the Central Pacific Company to continue building eastward until the Central Pacific meets the Union Pacific, wherever that may be. By 1868, the Central Pacific is building across Nevada. Compared with building through the Sierras, this is a piece of cake. Tracks are laid for half the amount of the government subsidy. This more than makes up for losses in the Sierras. Nonetheless, there are difficulties. The cost of rails, locomotives, cars, blasting powder, and round-the-horn shipping are sky-high. Moreover, in the Nevada deserts, there is no timber for ties and trestles the needed lumber must be brought in from the Sierras. Meanwhile, the Union Pacific is well underway. Like the Central Pacific, construction is slow at first as the company struggles to obtain workers and material from a nation consumed by the Civil War. By the close of 1865, only 40 miles of track stretches westward from Omaha. During the next two years, though, conditions improve rapidly. First, Grenville Dodge, a U.S. Army general who campaigned against Indians on the Great Plains and knows the country well, gets a leave of absence from the Army and is hired as the Union Pacific's chief engineer. Second, Irish Civil War veterans begin to drift westward with the close of the war. Grenville quickly hires these hard-drinking, hard-fighting Irish war veterans to fill the construction crews. All is still not smooth sailing on the Great Plains. All materials have to be brought into that barren country. Ties from the forests of Minnesota, stone from the quarries of Wisconsin, and rails from the mills of Pennsylvania. Moreover, several different tribes of Plains Indians are on the warpath. Work is frequently halted, while construction crews grab rifles to beat off attacks. By the spring of 1868, the Central Pacific and the Union Pacific realize they are engaged in the greatest race in history. The Central Pacific is winging its way across the deserts of Nevada. The Union Pacific is working its way across the high plains of Wyoming and through Lone Tree Pass in the Rockies. Between the two railroads lay Utah, which the federal government has defined as mountain country, although much of the route the railroad will take is perfectly flat. In Utah, the railroads are thus entitled to subsidies of $48,000 a mile while building over relatively flat terrain. Each company spurs its men on relentlessly in hopes of grabbing off a major share of the Utah prize. The Central Pacific builds 360 miles of road in 1868. The Union Pacific, 425. The pace of construction becomes feverish in 1869. The Union Pacific lays six miles of track in one day. The Central Pacific counters with seven. The Union Pacific lays seven and a half miles, and the Central Pacific matches it. Then the Union Pacific lays an astounding eight and a half miles of track in one day. At this point, Thomas Durant, the president of the Union Pacific, asks Charles Crocker if he thinks the Central Pacific can top that eight and a half miles. The two wager $10,000 equal to a million dollars in today's money.
0: And when we come back, we continue with this remarkable story. And my goodness, the story of the Chinese workers and the former Civil War vets who just happened to be Irish. We hear that story told by Stephen Ambrose. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And that's the transcontinental railroad from the workers' point of view. And Ambrose does such a great job of doing that in almost all of his nonfiction. When we return, we continue with this remarkable story and to hear all of our stories, go to ouramericannetwork.org. And if you have a suggestion for a story, send them to us. You are the hour in Our American Story, and they are some of our favorites. Again, send your stories about almost anything, but particularly people who helped build your town, because each town in this country has people who founded it and got it started. When we continue more of this remarkable story, the building of the Transcontinental Railroad and the Big Four here we continue here with our American stories and the story of the big four and the building of the transcontinental railroads and for you who don't know a lot about finance, the idea that the government gave up its first claim in the case of bankruptcy and allowed private investors to get in there first, well without that we would have had nothing. Is what private investor wants to put in their money when if something goes wrong, they get nothing back and here on our American stories we like to teach you a bit about how markets work sometimes for the better and sometimes, well, sometimes they don't work at all. And now let's continue with the story of the Big Four and the Transcontinental Railroad.
5: Crocker assembles his best men and then waits for several days until the railroads are approaching Promontory Summit and so close together that should the Central Pacific break the track lane record, the Union Pacific will have no opportunity to respond. With newspaper correspondents present, and one of the journalists acting as the official timer, Crocker's boys swing into action. The first rail is laid, and others follow at the rate of 240 feet of rail every one minute and 20 seconds. The pace is fantastic, but can the Central Pacific crew maintain it for hours on end? The crew doesn't slacken its pace or stop until a break for lunch. After resting and eating, the crew springs back into action again at the same record-breaking pace. At the end of the workday time is called and the distance carefully measured. The Central Pacific crew has laid 10 miles and 56 feet of track. The Union Pacific record is broken and Charles Crocker is $10,000 richer. Now it's the general impression of most today that the track laying must have been done by a cast of thousands and that since this was the central pacific those laying the track must have been chinese not true on either count the newspaper reporter who was timing the event said quote it may seem incredible but nevertheless it is a fact that the whole 10 miles of rail were handled and laid down this day by eight white men. These men were Michael Shea, Michael Kennedy, Michael Sullivan, Patrick Joyce, Thomas Daly, George Elliott, Edward Killeen, and Fred McNamara. These eight Irishmen in one day handled more than 3,500 rails, 1,000 tons of iron... On May 10th, 1869, a group of workers and company officials gather at Promontory Summit, Utah, and watch the placing of the last tie, the fixing of the last rail, and the presentation of the various precious metal spikes, including the golden spike from California. Hats off, signals a telegraph operator to all the listening nation. Prayer is being offered. Several minutes later, Telegraph wires hum again. We have got done praying. Leland Stanford of the Central Pacific has the honor of driving in the golden spike. Actually, tapping in the golden spike with a mallet. It's too soft to be driven with a sledgehammer. After the ceremonial tap-in, the golden spike is removed and a steel spike set in its place. Stanford now takes a mighty swing with a sledgehammer and misses. Thomas Durant of the Union Pacific takes a mighty swing and misses. With the count 0 and 2, a crew chief steps forward and drives the spike home. The Central Pacific Locomotive number 119 and the Union Pacific Locomotive Jupiter steam forward and touch cowcatchers. catchers. Their engineers have the first drinks, and then the celebration becomes general. The entire United States celebrates. Chicago makes a procession seven miles long. New York hangs out bunting, fires a 100 guns, and holds church services. Philadelphia rings the Liberty Bell. Hundreds gather in the streets of Buffalo and sing the Star Spangled Banner. In Sacramento and San Francisco, people are celebrating until dawn. In Leland Stanford, Hollis Huntington, Mark Hopkins, and Charles Crocker are the heroes of the hour. The building of the Transcontinental Railroad is the greatest engineering and construction project up to that time in American history. California had been isolated from the United States despite the gold rush and the admission of California to the Union. Now, the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad shatters that barrier of isolation. Personally, Stanford, Huntington, Hopkins, and Crocker are transformed from four middle-class Sacramento businessmen into the big four. They do not rest on their laurels, but forge ahead and form a second company, the Southern Pacific Railroad. They lay tracks through California and eventually across Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. Until the mid-1880s and the arrival of the Santa Fe Railroad, the Big Four have a monopoly of rail transportation in California. The monopoly and the wealth and power it gives them makes them truly the Big Four. But with that comes critics and enemies. Though president of both the Central Pacific and the Southern Pacific, Stanford finds time to develop two wineries and a racehorse breeding farm and to build a mansion on Nob Hill in San Francisco. He also becomes the president of a steamship line. In 1885, he is elected to the U.S. Senate. Also in 1885, he establishes Stanford University in honor of his son, Leland Stanford Jr., who died the year before of typhoid fever. Stanford donates acreage for the university from his racehorse facility which explains why Stanford University's nickname, The Farm. Stanford also donates about $2 billion in today's money to fund the university. Stanford dies at 69 years old in 1893. Collis hennington continues as lobbyist for the Central Pacific and the Southern Pacific Railroads in Washington, D.C. Suspicions abound, and that he greases the palms of, of congressmen, but nothing is ever proved. In eighteen ninety one he completes the building of the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad across Virginia and through West Virginia to the Ohio River. At the Ohio River, he builds town of Huntington and develops it as an industrial center. He also builds shipyards at Newport News and several short lines throughout Virginia. Huntington's activities contribute to an economic boom. Huntington donates tens of millions in today's dollars to the building and maintenance of schools, museums, libraries, and parks in Virginia. One of the schools that benefits enormously from Huntington's largesse is the Hampton Institute, Virginia's first black college. Huntington dies at 78 years old in 1900. Most of his vast art collection goes to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, proceeds from the sale of his Fifth Avenue mansion, go to Yale University. Mark Hopkins continues his role managing the financial affairs for the Central Pacific and the Southern Pacific. His sage advice keeps his partners from making rash moves with their new wealth. He donates to various charities and begins the building of a mansion on Knob Hill but he dies at age 64 in 1878. His wife, Mary, finishes the mansion and lives there until her death in 1891. The mansion is destroyed in the earthquake and fire of 1906. The Mark Hopkins Hotel is later built on the site. What is the penthouse suite at the top of the hotel is converted in 1939 to a grand cocktail lounge and restaurant called the top of the mark. When World War II erupts, it becomes tradition for couples to have their last dinner, drink and dance together at the top of the mark before the serviceman departs for war in the Pacific. Charles Crocker continues supervising construction for the Central Pacific and Southern Pacific. He founds towns along the southern Pacific route across Arizona and New Mexico and names one of them Deming in honor of his wife's maiden surname. He serves for a time as president of Wells Fargo. He buys controlling interest in the Woolworth National Bank, reorganizes it, and names it Crocker Bank. He speculates in real estate and irrigation farming. And is one of those responsible for California's boom in fruit and vegetable production. In 1886, while visiting in New York, his carriage overturns and he is seriously injured. He never recovers and dies at age 65 in 1888. He leaves behind an estate valued at 400 million, something like 6 billion in today's dollars. Leland Stanford, Collis Huntington, Mark Hopkins, and Charles Crocker were real-life Horatio Alger characters who rose from humble beginnings to power and wealth. They were emblematic of other larger-than-life figures who arrived in the Old West when it was a wilderness and helped transform it into a modern society.
0: And special thanks to Roger McGrath for telling this story, the Big Four and the Transcontinental Railroad. And as Stephen Ambrose reminded us in his version of the story, and that's about the workers mostly, that those 30 years in American history brought us the Telegraph, the Transcontinental Railroad, the Civil War, and the end of slavery. And Ambrose called it the most transformational generation in American history. I leave it to you to decide. The story of the Transcontinental Railroad, here This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and now we bring you Doug Ryder with our latest edition of our Founders series, a series about how everyday Americans risk it all to follow their dreams, how people amidst doubts and challenges become founders of great businesses and great movements. Here's Doug with the story.
2: Today, on The Founders. As a baby boomer, this sounds odd, but I thought, as a kid growing up, that everybody went to war. I always thought there'd be a war you were going to go to when you got to be of age. So when the Vietnam War came along, I signed up. I didn't even think twice about it.
6: In this episode, we bring you the story of a man whose childhood dreams would become reality.
2: I ended up flunking the first grade. I just didn't do my homework. I was—I kept getting in the way of my, going out and playing, playing army <laughs> you know, with the fake plastic guns and stuff. And also I had an interest in aviation and would do these soap rock razor things with wings and try to go down these hills and try to fly. I flew for this Sultan of Oman yeah, I was a major in the Royal Amman Police Force for 13 years, and I flew for the king of Saudi Arabia as an air medical pilot for three years. A man who would use his
6: vast experience to save the lives of people you often don't think about, but one day might
2: need. My mission is to bring down the accident rate in helicopter EMS, air medical. The founder,
6: the person responsible for America's air medical safety movement. On today's episode of The Founders, we bring you the story of Randy Maines.
2: How can we stop the carnage? Following his
6: military service, Randy found some less than mundane jobs around the world. Herding cattle with helicopters in Australia, discovering oil and training pilots in Iran. Though after the Iran hostage crisis, Randy's employer had to pull him out, and he was out of a job. Luckily, an old military buddy named Joe threw him a lifeline.
2: And Joe was now flying this new thing called Helicopter Air Medical at Herman Hospital in Houston. And he called me up at the hotel and said, how would you like to have this new job flying uh, this new thing called Helicopter EMS? I said, what's EMS? He said, you're an air ambulance. And, and Herman Hospital is the second program in America. And we're, we're trying to prove to a doubting American public and medical field that the helicopter can be used to save lives in peacetime in America like we knew it could in Vietnam and in Korea. That was in uh, January 79. I said, yeah, I'm out of a job, Joe, that sounds great. So we moved to Houston. And Houston became like a training base because these air ambulance programs were popping up right and left. The medical director saw it as like a a courtesy car bringing high-paying trauma patients to their hospital, racking up big bills. So it throws out a broader net, and so it was exciting stuff. But we were working 72-hour shifts, 72 hours at the hospital, and then you had 72 hours off. Little sleep,
6: high stress situations, themes like a disaster waiting to happen.
2: Normally about 13 people die every year in helicopter air ambulance. The number one main type of accident, they usually try to avoid going into the clouds. They fly single pilot, they don't have another pilot with them. And what happens is they go into the clouds inadvertently in weather with a real dark, environment where they can't see the horizon they're not proficient in flying on instruments or or comfortable flying on instruments like a fixed-wing pilot they lose spatial orientation it's a scary situation they call it inadvertent imc going inadvertently into instrument meteorological conditions they don't know which way up is and they crash air medical pilot. You know, we flew 85% of our our flights to the scene of the accident. I've I've seen more, way, 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 way more blood, gore, and guts and human suffering flying as an air medical pilot than I ever saw in Vietnam. Now, why is that?
6: Well, there's this thing called the golden hour. If you can transport a severely injured patient within an hour of the incident, chances of survival are exponentially greater. We're talking about an accident so severe that the speed of a helicopter is the difference between life and death. Accidents so severe that the pilots don't have time to assess the weather conditions, use their flying instruments, and mitigate other human error. An old buddy, David Sutcliffe, who at the time worked for the government of Oman, visited randy in san diego and stayed with him in his ems quarters
2: he saw me keep getting these uh, calls at night and this is after we got the rid of the um instrument helicopter now i'm back to flying a helicopter that's just using your eyeballs and staying visual he couldn't believe that i was taking off in this kind of weather on a single engine helicopter he said randy if we ever get an opening in Oman would you like to have a job there i said yes cuz this is dangerous this is dangerous
0: and when we come back we'll continue with Randy Mains and he was not the founder of a business but he was a founder of something even more important a movement the air medical safety movement and when we come back more of this remarkable story Randy Maine's story here On Our American Stories.
5: To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break.
0: Continue with Randy Main's story, our founders series here on our American Stories. And when we last left off, Randy was at a crossroads. There was the dangerous air ambulance work that he was doing, and there was this job abroad. Well, let's just say it was safer. Let's pick up where we last left off.
2: I already lost, almost lost my life five times twice going inadvertently into the clouds and luckily getting myself down again. And this is in a helicopter that's not certified to fly on instruments. This is before the Bell 222. And three other times I almost lost my life. At night, landing to a, um, a road with, to a perfectly set up flare pattern by the first responders with crisscross wires overhead of it. They didn't look up. I could see it was dangerous, so yes, I wanted to get uh, out of it. And true to his word, about seven months later, he offered, I was offered a job flying with the Royal Oman Police in Oman, so I became a major, a uniformed major. It was the best job I ever had in my life because we were treated like professionals. We were never questioned on our judgment like we were in Air Medical back in the States.
6: EMS pilots aren't used to having any judgment on the safety of flying conditions at all. They would usually just get orders, fly out to an accident, and that was it. In fact, the hospital medical directors required pilots to lift off within five minutes of getting their orders. Barely any time at all to assess if the flying conditions would put themselves and the patients at
2: risk. This is crazy. This is an organization, or these are people that are trying to save lives and they're killing people. To
6: be clear, pilots aren't dying because of medical directors. They're dying for three reasons. One, inadequate instrument training that would otherwise allow pilots to reorient when getting turned upside down in the clouds. Two, pilots don't have proper safeguards to prevent these scenarios, such as GPS, Autopilot and two engine helicopters stable enough to help mitigate bad weather and human error. And three, they're flying single engine helicopters with no space for a co pilot to help guide them out of sticky situations.
2: I saw a different paradigm when I left air medical flying in the States and worked with the Royal Amont Police. We flew with two crew. We were instrument-rated, current, and proficient. We got plenty of training. We had all the bells and whistles in the aircraft to autopilot. Everything's safe. A large contrast to most
6: American EMS pilots.
2: Flying without the proper equipment has killed more aviators than bullets ever have because you just lose it and really experienced pilots with a lot of flight time have died by inadvertently going into a cloud and not having an autopilot to help them out or a second pilot to help them out. But of course you put a second pilot in there, now you're talking about you gotta get a bigger helicopter, it's gonna cost more money, you have to have two engines instead of one to get, have the oomph to get you off the ground. Okay, so it's all about money. Most of the programs in America flying air medical would not be allowed to operate outside our borders because they wouldn't come up to the same criteria that they need in Canada, that they need in Europe You might think the FAA,
6: the Federal Aviation Administration, would have regulations to ensure pilot safety but believe it or not the FAA falls incredibly short because of one fundamental problem
2: the FAA, I don't have a lot of time for the FAA. There's a lot of good people working for them, but they're overworked, and they've got a schizophrenic mandate. They can, they have to both promote air uh, commerce and regulate it. It's a conflict, because they don't want to make laws that are going to put people out of business. So what they do is they come up with recommendations, and they go to the operators and they say, what do you think? And they say, well, we can't afford to put autopilots in our helicopters. It'll it'll put, put many of us out of business. So the FAA doesn't mandate it. And um, that is one of the major problems and why there's so many accidents. They know what the solution is, but it will cost too much. Whereas if it happened in Europe, if it happens in Canada. We, if you don't, if you can't afford to get in the game, you don't get in the game, because human life is more important than the bottom line. 2008 was the worst year on record for losing air medical folks. 27. They called a the task force. The FAA said we've got to find out how to stop these accidents because we're losing about 13 people a year in air medical. Seven months later head of the FAA, and uh, head of the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board. They said, from 2000 to 2008, had there been an autopilot or a second pilot, out of the 123 people that died, 60 people would probably still be here today.
6: Although at the time, Randy was far from the problem, working for Abu Dhabi Aviation in the United Arab Emirates, the deaths of American EMS pilots hitting close to home.
2: If the FAA is not going to mandate that they put in the proper equipment to keep everybody alive in the air medical side, and there was a study, 94% of the crashes in air medical has been due to human error. So it's avoidable, but they have to know what the human foibles are and the human factors are to keep them out of trouble, and I've got the answer. So in January 2013, I quit my job at Abu Dhabi Aviation to come to America to teach crew resource management to air medical programs to keep everybody alive. If they're not going to be given the tools to keep them alive by the FAA, let's work on the mental stuff to keep everybody coming home safely. So I thought, how about if I train people to my standard? I spent two months, nine hours a day seven days a week, building a train-the-trainer course based on the EASA model, the European Aviation Safety Agency model. So it's basically training these guys to airline pilot standards, but in the helicopter. And it's a 300 page manual and, and over five gig flash drive with all the PowerPoint presentations with embedded clips.
6: All that sounds great. But in the absence of better equipment, What are the pilots supposed to do?
2: Easy. I teach them how to say no. I teach them I'm not going to do this. I teach them that they can identify a hazardous attitude. I teach them that they can identify a link in an error chain forming. I teach them the human factors that can cause them to make a bad decision. And they can all look after each other and say, wait a minute, this is nuts. When somebody in the crew says, this is stupid, you go home. So if I can teach them the human factors that can cause them to make mistakes, then many lives, the lives of those rescuing lives, can be
6: saved. For the Founders Series on Our American Stories, I'm Doug Ryder.
0: And thanks so much to Doug Ryder and Doug is the force behind our Founders Series here on Our American Stories. And thanks to Joey for giving a helping hand on the production and putting these pieces together, as he always does. And thanks to Randy Maines for telling the story. And by the way, if you have a founder's story from your community or just someone you know, send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. And it does not have to be simply a founder of a business. As you heard here, this is a guy who founded a movement, a safety movement, an important one for people in the field He understands and is an expert in. And by the way, it can be founders of a church, it can be founders of a nonprofit, founders of businesses, sports, franchises, whatever. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And my goodness, I never really thought about it before, that idea that, a man, a hospital would just say, go get to the accident and not really chart a path and not really look at the weather patterns. And my goodness, it's so true what can happen once you're in those clouds. I have friends who fly. And I've been up there a couple of times when you get in the clouds. And let me tell you, when you're with people who aren't instrument-rated, it's scary. And I don't do it anymore. I mean, I did before, but I don't do it anymore. As good as they say they are, even when they're instrument-rated, even when they have the experience, I'm getting on a nice old commercial plane. Brandy Mainz's story here on our American Stories, our family series. to Our American Stories. And now it's time for an irreverent approach to radio with a brief history of the telephone. Here's Jesse. Hi, this is
1: Jesse with Our American Stories. Please leave your name and number, and I'll get back with you shortly. Unless you're close, family, or somebody from work, there's a good chance I might screen your call. Even then, who knows? It's nothing personal, and a lot of us do it. 61% of Americans surveyed said that they avoid calls from family or friends. 22% admitted to screening calls from work. There are reasons that some of us don't want to pick up the phone. Texting and email are infinitely more efficient. I could be driving, I could be eating, maybe I'm working, or whatever. If you need to call, leave a message, and I'll most likely text you back. Maybe I just don't want your little voice directly in my ear right now. Did you ever think of that? On the other hand, there is something to be said about using the good old-fashioned telephone part of your telephone.
7: 911, what's your emergency? I have knife hands. Excuse me? I looked down and
2: my hands were knives.
7: Your hands are knives? Yeah. Can you put the knives down?
2: No, they're my hands.
1: Like emergency situations when you need to convey a lot of information fast. Like a war zone. But how did we get to this point where so many of us have not only taken the phone for granted, but will go through such great lengths to avoid one of the greatest inventions of our time? Of course, it all starts with Alexander Graham Bell, the first to patent the design that several others had worked on before 1867. He was also the first to build a fully functional telephone. While building the prototype, Bell knocked over some equipment and called for his assistant, Thomas Watson.
4: Mr. Watson, come here, I want you! Mr. Bell, I heard you. I heard every word you said distinctly. You said, Mr. Watson, come here, I want you. Why, well, so I did. Oh, it's a wonderful day for you, Mr. Bell. Everything you've worked for, every dream has come true. It works, Mr. Bell, it works. Yes, I I dare say you're right, Watson. Our experiments have opened up a, a new age of communications. There'll be a day when, when people will think nothing of conversing through instruments such as we have developed. You mean as an everyday occurrence? Well, that's what I had in mind. The day will come when when people will think no more of speaking to someone miles away than as if they were in the same room. Think of its possibilities. Yes, Watson. I can foresee the day when homes will be linked to other homes. Homes to factories, factories to stores. Cities will be joined to other cities. And nations to other nations. But tell me how, Mr. Bell, how can you foretell all these wonders? Well, not really. Who would know better than I? Early
1: telephones used a single wire for each line, with a ground return to complete the circuit. They also had only one hole, to speak into or listen out of at any given moment. However, you could install a second phone and another line to have the luxury of a talking hole for your mouth and a listening hole for your ear at twice the price. Small networks started a form which led to larger ones with centralized switchboards and switchboard operators in the larger cities and towns. By 1904, there are over three million phones in the United States. In January of 1915, Thomas Watson in San Francisco received a phone call from Alexander Graham Bell in New York City.
4: Hello! 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 How are Hi. Oh, it's you! I didn't expect Why, to I didn't you. to right we
1: Quiet! People who lived in small communities out in the backwoods, however, had a hard time getting service at first. To be fair, it was very expensive for a phone company to run 30 miles of cable just for 20 people to have service. One solution to this early problem was the use of party lines, A single phone line could be run miles out of a main city at the fraction of a cost of a large cable. People out in the country could have a phone in their home, but the line itself was communal.
4: Excuse me, I'm using this phone. You certainly are. This is a party line, you know. Did you hear that, Catherine? This is the first call I've made on this phone, and some boob is complaining.
1: You might pick up your phone only to accidentally eavesdrop on your neighbor's conversation.
4: Excuse me. I'm talking on the phone. Yes, continually. What do you do? Sell magazine subscriptions? (laughs) Will you please get off the line?
1: The phone would ring, and it might be a call for one of your neighbors. Excuse
7: me, I'm using the phone. I'll be off in a second. You
1: can imagine the kind of fun our kids might have had with this kind of technology. Hello? Eavesdropping on calls became an ongoing concern for the adults. Listen, Buster. Not only that, it caused friction between impatient neighbors who had a hard time waiting their turn.
2: We've been patient
4: phone you stay
1: off now if you weren't tied to a party line you picked up the phone told the operator who you wanted to talk to and they patched you through here's an authentic phone call of a young man phoning a friend in 1951 operator 481 please thank
7: you Oh, is Jerry there? Uh,
4: No, he isn't. He's downtown someplace.
7: Oh, okay. You
4: bet. Mm -hmm, Thank
1: you. Thanks. By the time a good part of the population was becoming familiar with using switchboard operators to connect their calls, the first rotary dial telephones in the Bell system were installed in Virginia in 1919. This all required a lot of education on the part of the telephone companies.
4: The local news of the week. At midnight Saturday, the telephones in this city will be changed to dial service and all telephone numbers will be changed. Late this week, new directories will be delivered. Here are a few important suggestions for the use of your dial telephone.
1: Not only did they need to teach people how to use the phone in the first place, there was a good amount of etiquette that had yet to be established.
7: There are a few easy rules to be followed when dialing because careless dialing mistakes will waste a lot of your time and Cause someone else to be inconvenienced and probably irritated. When you want to make a call, always be sure you have the right number. Consult your directory for any number you're not sure of. Write the number down. You'll hear the dial tone. That means that the equipment is ready to handle your calls. Take up your receiver and always listen for the dial tone. Remember how it sounds a steady hum.
1: Push-button touch-tone phones made their debut in 1963 and picked up speed during the 70s, though the majority of telephone subscribers still had rotary phones, which in the Bell system of that era, released from telephone companies instead of being owned. In 1967, President LBJ's Commission on Law Enforcement called for the creation of a single number that could be used nationwide for reporting emergencies. The FCC met with AT&T and came up with the 911 system.
7: 911, what's your emergency? I think somebody
1: broke into my house. He
7: might leave
4: it alone. Speaking of LBJ.
1: This is a recording of a White House phone call from August 9th, 1964. President Johnson is ordering pants.
4: Hello. Hello. Now, the pockets, when you sit down in a chair, the knife and your money comes out, so I needed at least another inch in the pockets. yeah. Now, another thing, the crotch is always a little too tight. So when you make them up, give me an inch that I can let out there uh, because they cut me. It's just like riding a a wire fence. These are almost, these are the best that I've had anywhere in the United States. But uh, uh, when I gain a little weight, they cut me under there. So leave me, uh, you never do have much margin there. Let's see if you can't leave me about an inch from where the zipper (coughs) is. pins, uh, round, uh, under my, back to my, all
2: right
0: then. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, by the way, this is the story of Free Enterprise, folks. There was a time I remember when I would dial the phone and I hated people who had the zero number because it took so long for the dial to come back. And by the way, hearing President John, Lyndon Baines Johnson order a change in his pants, precious. Our American Stories The Brief History of the Telephone continues after these commercial messages. Return to our American stories and a brief history of the telephone. Let's return to Jesse and the story. Presidents
1: of the United States have been placing important phone calls since Rutherford B. Hayes had a telephone installed in the White House in 1877. And on July 20th, 1969, President Nixon literally placed an out of this world phone call when he rang up the Apollo 11 astronauts shortly after the first (laughs) moonwalk, shortly after the first walk on the moon.
4: Uh, Neil and Buzz, uh, the President of the United States is in his office now and would like to say a few words to you, over. That would be an honor. Uh, Go ahead, Mr. President, this is Houston out. Hello, Neil and Buzz. I'm talking to you by telephone from the Oval Room at the White House. And this certainly has to be the most historic telephone call ever made. All the people on this Earth are truly one. One in their pride in what you have done. And one in our prayers that you will return safely to Earth. Thank you, Mr. President. It's a great honor and privilege for us to be here representing not only the United States, but and of peace of all nations, and with interest and a curiosity, and, and with a vision for the future, uh, honor for us to be able to participate here today.
7: We're sorry, you have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service.
4: And that
1: familiar voice is known as an intercept. It's
7: You have reached this recording in error.
8: Please check the number and try your call again.
1: A recording you hear when you've hit a dead end. Jane Barbie was known as the Time Lady for the recordings that she made for phone companies as a voice actress.
7: I don't really like to think about speaking to over 20 million people a day, which is what I'm told the statistic is. About half of that is divided between, uh, rather, I should say, it's divided about half and half between. People calling for time and temperature and weather or or getting a telephone intercept message like the number you have dialed is temporarily disconnected or it's not in service or I'm sorry, all circuits are overloaded now. Would you try your call again later, please? I know you've gotten a million of
1: those. In 1983, the Dynatac 8000X was the first commercially available handheld mobile phone, but it had been tested out on the streets of New York City 10 years earlier in 1973 by a guy named Martin Cooper.
2: The first public cellular call was made uh, in New York. Uh, I was with Motorola at that time, and I thought a dramatic thing to do was to call my counterpart at AT AT&T. So I dialed the phone, and I said, Hi, Joel. Uh, It's Marty Cooper. He said, Hi, Marty. I said, I'm calling you from a cell phone. And there was silence at the other end of the line. The uh, idea for the shape of this first phone started out with me approaching Motorola's design group. Uh, I told them that I wanted to have a really dazzling design. And two weeks later, they had a flip phone, they had a slider phone. But we selected this phone because it was simple.
1: Simple and expensive at $4,000. That's 10 grand in today's money. It weighed two pounds, 13 inches tall, stored 30 numbers, and took 10 hours to recharge. This thing was a brick, but it was just the beginning. Available since the 50s, answering machines cost upward of $200 to purchase. It wasn't until 1984 that answering machines became affordable and sales reached a million units per year in the United States. Soon, in what would become one of the darker chapters in American history, The rise of novelty answering machine greeting messages plagued the earth for years.
4: Well, Gracie, what do you think of the new answering machine? Oh, George, it's wonderful, but it doesn't work. It uh, doesn't work. I've talked for hours to that thing, but it never once answered me back. I think it's a very rude machine, George. You've got a point. Uh, Say goodnight, Gracie. Goodnight, Gracie. And you, leave your message when you hear the beep.
1: I give you the Radio Shack Telephone Answering Machine Outgoing Messages Comedy Edition with celebrity impersonators.
4: Wouldn't you just call a person and you get a machine. I mean, it's absolutely disgusting! A machine that'll record your voice! What's next? I'll tell you what's next! The beat!
1: And of course, there was always a musical option for your answering machine outgoing message.
4: I've stepped up for a moment, but I'll call you right back if you let me know who you are.
1: I am putting this on my phone today.
4: The time that you call and where I can reach you I get
1: home. Now, from the 90s on, cell phones became smaller and smarter. In 1993, perhaps the world's first smartphone, IBM Simon, was a mobile phone, pager, fax machine and PDA, all rolled into one. 1996 brings the flip phone, 2002, out comes the Blackberry, 04, the Motorola Razr, and on January 9th, 2007, Steve Jobs announced the first iPhone, describing it in three main components
8: a widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device. An iPod. A phone. And an internet communicator. An iPod. A phone. Are you getting it? These are not three separate devices this is one device and we are calling it iPhone today today Apple is going to reinvent the phone
1: and now here we are smartphones follow us everywhere with combination of social media and gaming Everywhere you turn, there are people staring into their phones like zombies. We can't get enough of our phones, yet we're spending less time actually talking to each other. I'm guilty of it, and we all know that our kids are hooked. Dr. Jean Twenge is the author of iGen, Super Kids Are Less Happy. Why?
7: There's just more and more evidence pointing in the direction of mental health issues and serious mental health issues just being more common just in the last five years. So the suicide rate for teens has increased by 50% for older teens and has tripled for girls um, who are 12 to 14. Clinical-level depression has increased by 50%. More report symptoms of depression, anxiety, self-harming behavior. So these these more serious problems are just more common than they used to be. um, Just not that long ago, the trends really started around 2011 or 2012. So that timing with these issues starting to show up around 2012 um, was suspicious because the economy was getting better at that point. Um, But that happens to be the year when smartphones became really common. And I found out later, uh, the Pew Center concluded that late 2012 is when the percentage of Americans who owned a smartphone crossed 50%. And it was probably a little earlier for teens, maybe around 2011. So right around the time smartphones became ubiquitous, these mental health problems started to go up and and then went from there.
1: But it doesn't have to all be doom and gloom. Remember those old phone etiquette training videos put out by the phone companies back in the day? They're fun to listen to. Simon Sinek is a motivational speaker who, among other things, tackles the topic of smartphone disrespect.
3: Okay, there is a subconscious reaction to these devices when we use them, okay? Okay. What if I were to hold my phone while I'm talking to you? I'm not checking it, it's not buzzing, it's not beeping. I'm not even. I'm nothing, I'm just holding it. Do you feel at this moment that you are the most important thing to me right now? No, you do not. Because there is a subconscious reaction we have to the device. When it is out, it makes the people around us feel that they are less important. When we show up to a meeting, or a lunch, or a dinner, with our colleagues, our clients, or our friends, or our families, and we put the phone on the table, we have announced to everyone in the room that they are not that important to us. And by the way, putting the phone upside down is not more polite. (laughs) My favorite one is when the meeting or at a lunch with someone, that the phone will ring and the caller ID will pop up and they will go, I'm not gonna get it. Oh, so magnanimous. Oh, I'm lucky to eat with you today. Or they could just put the damn thing away. You can tell how addicted we are. When somebody pulls out their phone when you're with them, how uncomfortable does that make us feel? You're walking down the street with someone, they pull their phone out. We feel stupid, so what do we do? We pull our phones out. We're so addicted, somebody goes to the bathroom when we're at dinner, and what do we we have to sit there by ourselves? God forbid we should look around the room for five minutes. We pull our phones out. Meetings. Awful. What do we do when a meeting happens, right? Everybody's sitting waiting for the meeting to start. Bob's running a few minutes late. Bob's here? Okay, start the meeting. Do you know when relationships are built? All that in between time.
1: We're only now starting to see the effects that screen time has on our lives, our relationships, our careers. But one thing is for certain, putting down the phone couldn't hurt anything. So if I screen your call, Don't take it personal. I'm away from my phone, and I'll return your call with the text shortly. After all, I might be playing with my kids, or just scrolling through Facebook. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
6: Sorry,
7: you have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. If you feel you have reached this recording in error, please check the number and try
0: your call again. And great job as always, Jesse, and what a story. A brief history of the telephone. We'd love your story ideas. Send them to our ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.